It's ad time. First off, I want to remind you all that you can support the show at patreon.com slash beyondsolitaire. It would mean a lot to me, and I've got some surprises in store for my patrons, so I'll make it worth your while. Second, the Beyond Solitaire podcast is proudly sponsored by Central Michigan University's Center for Learning Through Games and Simulations. They've just wrapped up their Kickstarter campaign for Rising Waters, which will be their second published game, but check the landing page if you want to pledge late. You should also have a look at their site for information about their Certificate in Applied Game Design, which features upcoming classes from Eloy Santa, Lamar Smith, and in a few months, yours truly. For now, though, let's get on with the show. Hey, gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire, and I am here with a very special guest this week. This is your third time on here, Amabel Holland from Hollandspiel. How are you doing, Amabel? I'm all right. How are you? Pretty good. I'm glad to have you back on as a favorite guest of the show. Um, we have an interesting contra- we have had interesting conversations in the past about games as art, uh, about Nicaea, which delighted me immensely. Um, <laughs> And now we are going to be talking about your newest, like, big upcoming game. Uh, so why don't you tell us about that one? Yes, it is called Endurance. It is a solitaire game of Antarctic survival. Uh, specifically, it takes as a subject the 1914 expedition led by Ernest Shackleton to try to cross Antarctica from one side to the next over land. Um, they did not get to Antarctica. The ship got stuck in some ice and was crushed and they spent time camping out on the ice and were out there for like i want to say 18 months or so and then miraculously um all 28 of the men survived uh and were able to be rescued um and so it's it's probably like one of the more famous expeditions uh to antarctica and um it's uh a story that often gets told as in terms of like strong leadership and 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 overcoming adversity and whatnot and i think that certainly is an element but also i think the fact that the 28 men survived is miraculous it's it is it is a miracle it is one of the least likely things to have happened. You know, one thing uh, when we talk about historical games is we talk about them as models and, and uh, being probability-based models. Um, where, uh, and you even see that like, uh, for example, in the usual combat results tables, you have the possible results of a thing and you roll to determine which, which it is. And a lot of times um, we tend to privilege the historical result as being like, well, what, what was most likely to happen because that's what happened. But, you know, that's not, that's not really how life works, right? Because, <laughs> you know, if you're rolling on that combat, sometimes you will roll a one and, you know, something improbable will happen and sometimes that happens in life. You know, if you think about it as like a, um, let's take for example, a, a 2d6 bell curve, which I think everyone's fairly familiar with where when you're rolling 2d6, the most likely results are gonna be that six, seven, eight, that sweet spot. And then oh, to the, the, extreme, the extremes of it, you know, rolling two ones or two sixes, snake eyes or boxcars are very unlikely, but sometimes you roll snake eyes. You know, um, and so one of the things about my approach to the material is that I'm trying to do a game that centers the fact that 
this result was like not the likely result of 28 guys being stranded with very few supplies in one of the most inhospitable places on the planet. <laughs> so that's... <laughs> so um, in, so in the game, are you... where? Where's the game set? Is it like the ship is already stuck and the, you're just trying to get everybody through it? Is it like, what's our setting? Yeah, so the, sh- the ship is already stuck. You're already out camping on the ice waiting for the ship to be finally crushed and taken uh, under the water. So you're getting some supplies off the ship in that way. And uh, the game kind of stages you through successive camps, having to leave this camp to go to this one. And then there's a there's a sequence uh, in the game which is based on you know historical uh, actuality where um, they needed to get off the ice because it was starting to drift and starting to melt and starting to crack. And so they got on their lifeboats and spent three days in these lifeboats being awake for three days trying to get to an island in terrible weather um, and they get to this island where there is absolutely no food. They're the first people to set foot on the island. And then what happens is that um, Shackleton decides, okay, I, we're not going to get rescued unless we go to civilization. So I need to cross this, um, I want to see, say, like 1,800 kilometers on a boat. I'm going to get five guys and go on this boat, go, go to this island that where I know where it is. Um, and so they spent like a couple weeks on, on the water while on the other Island, the, the remaining guys are just there, just slowly starving. And then, and, and he ended up, uh, you know, they ended up being rescued, like probably like at the last possible moment, because like they, they had like four, once they got to civilization, they started trying to organize rescue uh, expeditions and like one after another failed and it wasn't until like months later that they got there and the men at that time um were like they had run out of food they had basically run out of hope um and were expecting someone to die any day now and then 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 they would have meat maybe (laughs) you know so it's a very it's a very uh bleak subject matter and so so the game is taking you through these camps and basically you are taking on the the kind of role of Shackleton in a way where you are given these choices to make in in these very difficult circumstances and your choices have consequences your choices do matter but you know you could make all the right choices and still end up in 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 a bad situation because part of it is luck part of it's the fact that more than luck that there's so much outside of your control when you're in a situation like that you know when 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 the entire environment is against you and you're trying to make the best decisions you can with that limited information and that limited agency. Ooh, this is intense. So are you saying that basically this is one of those situations where you've designed a historical game where the historical 
results are better than how the player will typically do. Uh, yeah, that's likely. Um, and uh, like in play testing, I have not yet seen anyone get it to the point where all the men survive. I, I, I haven't seen many where they're all wiped out. Like some do survive. But um, because there, there were a number of times when they're just very close calls, like they were attacked by freaking snow leopards. One time, uh, like the, the ice they were camped on just caved and men fell into the water. And one of them had to be someone to dive in and rescue one of the guys in the water. And that was very unlikely that they would have actually succeeded doing that. They did. But I mean, all, all these things are very, a, a lot of near miss things where they just happen to survive being suddenly attacked by, by a critter or whatnot. Um, and, you know, just the fact that they survived that boat trip, that three day boat trip is just a- astonishing to me because they already were exhausted and, 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 you know, not doing well not eating well and they get on these three relatively small lifeboats um and are like going through like this storm with with all the snow and like the fact that they survive that is is miraculous like that they had like the best roles in the world if we go back to our, our 2d6 model um and so, yeah, one thing I, I am trying to emphasize is that it's it's not likely you're going to actually get the historical the historical result is like the least likely result. Um, and I feel like that's something that's going to rub some people the wrong way because a lot a lot of people when they purchase historical games, they definitely are looking at um, they want to know what happened and why and how. But they don't think about like well, how likely was that thing to have happened. And I want to kind of embrace that. You know, this is a game I've been working on for uh, six years. Oh, wow. <laughs> since, since, since we started Helmspiel, basically. Um, and I think one reason why it's come together um, finally a- after all this time is I have this framework of it being this kind of miraculous occurrence and, and, and these things just going the right way. Um, certainly again, you make decisions to try to nudge things in your direction, but also things have to just go that way. And that's something that's very important to me, like in, in my day-to-day life. If I can digress briefly, I don't I don't feel like you, you would object to a digression. I would but... not. <laughs> so my current situation, I am the happiest I've ever been. Uh, I design and publish weird board games for a living full time. Um, and I'm a very happily out an obnoxious trans woman, right? Um, but that that existence itself is kind of miraculous because there was a set of coincidences that brought me to this point. Like the only reason why I design board games 
is because I was in a comic book store looking for back issues of New Mutants, went into their basement, and they had a bunch of modern board games. And I said, what the heck are these? And can can I get into this? And um, that's the only reason why I got into board games, right? Is, is just happening to walk into that store and going into that basement. In, in a city I don't even live in, you know, I was visiting a pal, uh, hanging out with a pal. Um, and then, you know, I designed a game when the earliest games that got published was Northern Pacific, uh, the Winsome Edition. And because of that game, um, there was someone who liked that game and wrote like a little piece about it on BGG. And, and this guy's name was Cole Worthy. And I, and that's how I, I knew who Cole Worthy was and how Cole Worthy knew who I was. And so when I started Hollenspiel with Mary, we asked Cole, um, who had just by that point just published his first game, uh, the original PAX premiere, like, do you want to do a game for us? And we're we're strangers, but he he kind of knows me from from North and Pacific, and he says yes and designs Infamous Traffic for us, which is it's incredible that he made that decision. I'm not sure, <laughs> but because he did that, we went full time, and because he did that, um, another designer who was looking for a publisher for her game, that's Erin uh, Escobedo with Mount Water. She submitted to us because we were the infamous traffic people, right? Um, and I became pretty good friends with Erin, and she's also a trans woman. And that was a big part of me figuring out that I'm trans. Um, so all of these things come from me going to that store, me uh, doing that train game for Winsome, Cole Worley saying, yeah, sure, I'll design this game for people I don't know. <laughs> I mean, all those things together have led to my current circumstances. And if any of those things had been different, I don't know if my circumstances would be the same. I don't know if I, would, if I, if I, if I wasn't full time, I don't know if I'd have time to think about gender, right? right. I don't know if I would have, um, I don't know if it would have been safe for me professionally to come out if I wasn't my own boss. So um, all those things together could have gone, all of it could have gone very differently. I had agency, I made decisions and, I'm, I, and I worked hard to be who I am and to have what I have. But also there's a tremendous amount of grace involved. Um, and so it's being very like hyper aware of that and hyper aware of the fact that you know, when, when I find, when the dam finally broke, it was probably like the last possible moment that it could have done that. Cause I was so depressed and so depersonalized and there's a very good chance that if things hadn't happened the way they happened, when they happened, I wouldn't be here to have a conversation with you. Right. So I, I feel very much like my life was saved by all these glorious circumstances and so it's awareness of that that i think animates my approach to the design and has made it actually come together as a game about um the miraculous and by demonstrating that miracle um through its probably noted absence and what is a very bleak game <laughs> that's fantastic yeah well i'm glad that you're here to have this conversation uh, that digression was in fact very welcome. Um, so 
yeah, I'm glad that this game is going to be here. And I also feel like, as usual, we're having kind of an interesting conversation about it in terms of history. Um, so your Twitter account, uh, in addition to being horny on Maine, uh, it involves lots of interesting historical discussions. And if I recall correctly, you had a thread the other day that was about like, um, it was about people being disappointed when you made things historically accurate in your mm -hmm. games, things like cavalry and muskets. Mm -hmm. um, could you maybe run down that thread and then we can connect it back to what you're doing with this game? Sure. So that thread particularly was about people who they think history works a certain way and it it didn't. So like like the, the, the big example with, with cavalry was um, there are a lot of people who play these games who, who want cavalry to be they want them to be like tanks, basically. They want them to be like invincible charging machines. And that's not how it works. Horses actually uh, are quite fragile. <laughs> you know? Spindly little legs, like, ooh. Yeah. And um, like there are people in like, uh, the examples I brought up were the Horse and Musket series and my own game, The Grass Crown, where they were disappointed that that cavalry is is so vulnerable and you can't just charge an infantry formation and like that's but that's that's the historical tool that you're using that's that's how that works the it's not so much even that like it's a question of like because i got, I got that's where i got a lot of traction like much more traction than i was expecting <laughs> and um and there are people who came into it like, yeah, well, you know, you want a game to be fun and you don't need all this detail. And I'm not even talking about like detail or fiddliness or, or you know, simulation versus game. I'm talking about like the game representing like at a very basic broad strokes level, like how this thing works. I don't, I don't understand like the kind of fantasy land, uh, expectation that things would work a way that they that they don't and they can't i mean it's, it's like you don't expect that out of like infantry you, you expect infantry to be able to like teleport or something you know unless you're playing like with a small child i okay this is another digression i once <laughs> i was at a convention once um like a very small local convention and someone brought his kid with him and he was going to play asl the kid was not going to play asl obviously um and the small kid had no one to play with him so i said okay i will play this game battles on the ice from Spiel, which i happen to have on with with me and that kid definitely decided that his infantry could teleport and <laughs> like that's that's how i feel when people are like why can't my cavalry just charge this this massed infantry formation with with you know why 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 did that go badly well because you're playing badly and i ran into this with uh siege of mantua which is one of my most recent releases where people are surprised how swingy the battles are and the thing is anytime you uh, you know as a military commander you bring troops into a battle there's the possibility especially like uh, a battle with equal odds, but you're risking your entire army. So you need to be careful about that. That's why so many uh, campaigns are about finding the battle that you want to fight and trying to avoid battle when you can't have it. And 
there's a tendency, I think, in in games and military history games for people to just want to, well, I just want to make an attack. I just want to roll some dice. And if you do that, you'll get chewed up. And that's what the game's, that's, a, that's like the space of the game is, hey, don't do that. Uh, don't, <laughs> don't, like, please be smarter than that. You have to be smarter than that. Um, and so that's the kind of, like, it's not even like real fidelity historical accuracy as because it's a very broad strokes models. I mean, you've played some of my games. They're very simple, you know? Um, but I want to get the broad strokes of it right and like have cavalry function the way you expect cavalry to function, have, you know, the chance of a battle going awry be the chance that would exist historically. Um, and yeah, so people, people are, di- people are disappointed when, when things make them feel bad is what it is. They're disappointed mm-hmm. when they don't feel successful and powerful. You know, um, they don't like the, like, there's a big, especially like in more in the euro space, I think there's a big tendency to like avoid negative reinforcement. You want good feelings. You want positive feedback loops. I don't want that. I, I want to make people like some, some of my, 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 the games that I are the most popular that I've done are ones that I try to make players feel bad. You know, I like, like table battles is like the best selling Hollandspiel title. And is based around lose a turn as a mechanic and, and forced reaction and, and, and counter, uh, you know, counter spells in, in, in a way where, where, you know, you, you are being blocked from doing the thing you want to do. And that's frustrating. And that's what the game's about. Um, and there are people who are like, I love this game, but I, I, wish, I wish it didn't force me to lose a turn. Well, then it, it doesn't, the game doesn't work then. That's what the game is and you have to work around that and figure that out it's the challenge of the game and so i feel i feel like i feel like the tendency for people to be irritable about about such things is they they don't want to feel like they've lost something they don't want to you know this loss aversion and whatnot and i think that also will come into play with with endurance, especially with the, um, you know, the somewhat limited degree of your agency, where unlike my other solitaire games, um, so I've done three solitaire games, and, you, and I know you've, you've played them, um, you know, this isn't a game where you're going around conquering and building things. There's nothing to conquer or build in Antarctica. You're just trying to survive and get through this. And so you have kind of limited agency, and because of that, so this is this is the, this is the cool thing about the game. There is no victory condition. There's no win condition or loss condition. The game just ends, and then you decide how you feel about what you did, how you did, and and what what the circumstances were. So um, there's there's no measurement because I'm because first of all. I'm not going to um, I'm not going to try to assign point values to human lives. And I guess in a way a lot of war game design does do that abstractly. You know, you get victory points for eliminating users, but 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 it feels a lot more personal when it's 
these 28 counters representing these 28 men. Right. You know, and you and died, all- but I still feel good about myself. What? Yeah, no. <laughs> um, and, and also, you know, there were uh, non-human man- members of, of the crew. There were uh, teams of dogs and there was uh, the cat, Mrs. Chippy, uh, who, who was a boy cat. <laughs> Trans icon, Mrs. Chippy. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and when it became clear, okay, the ship is gone. The first thing Shackleton did was say, okay, we're going to shoot all the dogs and the cat because they're not going to be able to pull their weight. They're just going to be extra miles. They kept some of the dogs for sled purposes. But, um, and it was a very hard decision. And, I, I can't gamify that. I mean, I can let you make that decision, but I can't give you a any way to incentivize or disincentivize that. Right. I don't feel morally okay with that, you know? So that was a big part of why I'm like, okay, this game is not going to have a victory condition. <laughs> it's just going, you're going to have an experience. And I want to center the experience of it rather than the the gaminess of it and certainly if you have more of the people survive well that feels like you've done better but it's really up to you to decide how you did and how you feel about it oh that's so interesting and i I've, actually you're not the first person i've talked to this season who has games that don't have win or loss conditions this is a i'm i'm very interested in this as a as a thing uh, well, i'm a little you... behind on, on on your episode so you have to oh you no 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 it. this is a recorded interview no one's heard this yet <laughs> but um you know I, I i find that that does do honor to the subject matter um i'm sure you're gonna get somebody who says well if it doesn't have a win-loss condition then is it really a game um so what is the response to that question for you thing is this is not the first time someone's told me one of my games isn't a game like north and pacific which does have a win win condition um people tell me it's not a game i don't there are rules you take turns you take actions and one of the players is going to win at the end but somehow it's not a game i've had players complain about westphalia my my six player game um in which uh between one and five of the players can win and they're like well that's not that's not a game uh because more more it's not it's not it's it's a competitive game but more than one player can win well that's that's not that's not really a game and like it it is it's literally a game so does that mean that baseball is not a game hmm if more than one player can win, does that mean that baseball is not a game? No, baseball is definitely a game. A very <laughs> boring game. I do not understand the appeal of, but it, it is a game. Uh, I disagree on the boring, but I'm just saying, we as a culture absolutely accept games that have more than one winner because whole mm-hmm. teams of people can win. Anyway, continue. <laughs> yeah, no. It's, so, like, I'm, it's at the point where I, I the question doesn't, bother me when people because it's like i don't know what to tell them and you know if you look at um there's a very popular class of games tabletop role-playing games no one wins those (laughs) 
you know um so i yeah i don't yeah that is a... <laughs> you know but they don't i i i don't and and then people will say well what i mean is when i say the word game i mean the specific type of game and i'm using it so people know what i'm talking about I'm like, i don't care stop being a nerd uh <laughs> like, I don't, you you math nerds who are like oh is this an ortho game like i'm no sorry i don't i don't care <laughs> i don't care it's it's a, it's literally a game you know <laughs> oh man i mean and, and there are games like most people who play party games like I'm talking about games like uh, Apples to Apples or something like that. Do they actually keep score or are they just playing the game? You know, some do, but a, a lot just play the game to, to be funny and spend time with their friends. And that's still a game. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I, I feel like definitions are useful when they highlight affinities and they are useless when they're used to exclude. And the question of, is this a game is often used to exclude things that you just don't like or care for. And I don't know. Yeah, I think there's a lot, a lot to that. Um, I also find it, so it's very interesting. You mentioned kind of entering a space of play that we could just call it a game. Um, you know, <laughs> Apples to Apples, for example, is there to, to offer fun. Mm-hmm. I think it's also maybe more difficult, you know, it, it's like flirting, I would say, is a game, right? Like you've entered a play space where you are going to verbally you know kind of play some tag and kind of you know what i mean or like um any sort of banter among friends i think that you could say is a game it's meant to kind of bond and like raise some morale and like it's supposed to be fun um but this game is maybe not supposed to be fun and i think a lot of people struggle with the idea of an experience that you can't beat that takes things away from you i think that people are going to be more likely to say that it's not a game because it doesn't you know, you feel like you should at least get some sort of reward at the end for all that work. Um, so, I don't yeah. know, it's never really been you, though. Like, <laughs> yeah. How, how, how have we gotten ourselves into a, into a space where we expect so much, I guess, positivity from our games? Since when was a game something that meant that you absolutely had to feel good? Weeks of losing, losing doesn't feel good. So why can't games feel bad in other ways? That's an excellent question. And it's one that I think about a lot, actually. Um, you know, and I'm not sure if I have, like, a good pithy answer. I, w- I wish I did. Um, I definitely think... I mean, people in general like things that make them feel good, right? Um you get this with any kind of, of art form. Um, people generally, you know, no one's favorite movie is Sophie's Choice. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, heck, my favorite movie is Gold Diggers 1933, which is one of the greatest musicals ever made. And it is just an absolute delight from start to finish. It's also about like the Great Depression and about class and, and, uh, actually has something to it, but it is a piece of confectionery, right? Um, and so I think 
I think why why games in general have kind of moved away from like negative reinforcement and and there's a lot of worry about loss aversion and whatnot is um that they become more popular and and more broadly popular so more people are coming to them who aren't going to put up with you know shit that makes them feel bad um i mean you know what i don't like playing settlers of Catan. you know why because when i roll a seven that that robber shows up and takes my stuff <laughs> right and that robber shows up a lot because it's a seven that Robert, back to the bell curve, shows up yep. all the time. And for me, that that just that spoils the experience of the game. So th- there's me having that, that not wanting to deal with that frustration and that loss aversion. So, I mean, that's, that's a very human thing, I think. Um, and I think if you're building games that are supposed to make you uh, feel happy or feel like you're building something, you don't want someone taking that away from you. So I think, you know, that kind of, combats the thing um so you know my solution is is to design games that are meant to be deliberately frustrating (laughs) i mean i've done like like um probably most people if they've heard of me and of hollenspiel like together and uh, they will think of something like this guilty land which is like the the game i get asked about anytime I'm interviewed by like a new outlet <laughs> um, or, or the vote for that matter, which is like a companion piece. And both those games are built to be deliberately very frustrating. Uh, like they're hard to operate. It's hard to actually get cards. It's, it's, a, it's based on like deadlock and like grinding to a halt. And that's to evoke this, this, political system that is built to grind to a halt um and i find that very rewarding as a play experience but not everyone else is is going to right um so i think yeah i i I think there's a tendency in human beings to in in things they consider to be entertainment to seek things that are happier or lighter or or less um, depressing. I think games in particular as a form are, you know, are often seen as being less capable of grappling with, you know, the big issues. I don't think that's true, but I do think the form is still evolving, which is very interesting because if you think about it, it is older than many forms. It's yeah, just, it's maybe sp- the oldest form. Yeah. We just spent a long time not really thinking about like what our games are saying or how they're saying them, right? Um, so I think that will come with time. Um, yeah, I think that also, I think we it's easy to dismiss games as a form because it's the thing that every animal really like does naturally. And so we think of it as for children, children play, and it's something that they instinctively know how to do before you teach them to read and before they have to learn how to write and all those different things. Like, because it comes easy in its earliest forms, maybe we feel like, you know, it's sort of the opposite, right? Of wanting to be able to just crush through the cavalry. Like we say that that's what we want, right? We want the reward of being all powerful and all that kind of stuff. But we also disdain things that come naturally to 
everyone because that's a more I mean, in a way that makes games like a leveler among all humans, because yeah. I don't know any humans who can't play. Yeah, uh, I, I I agree with that. And, you know, there are other forms like um, all all humans and all all animals um, eat. So like food, food is tremendously important, but food uh, can be people seem to think food a lot more seriously than they take games, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I think because they are more appreciative of the skill that goes into it and the variety, but there's a lot of skill and variety in, in games. Um, yeah, and one of our go-to insults is still, oh, go flip burgers. This which, is true. So you know? we, we, still, we, still we still diminish the labor that goes into it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And... Um, I think part of it too is how am I going to put this? Um, so I take games very seriously. Obviously, it's, it's, it's my livelihood, and I like playing games. Obviously, it's it's what I do. But um, there, there. I think part of it too is that there are people who maybe take games too seriously where they see being good at games as like a reflection of their intelligence and therefore their worth yes. and I, I i think there's a tendency to want to distance yourself from that kind of person who will absolutely make the special pleading of you know, games are like the best art form, you know, yeah. and games can do anything and whatnot. And um, I think you see this more like with video game discourse. Yes. Where, where uh, you know, being good at video games is seen as like a, a marker of uh, value or worth and people put their whole personality into it. And the thing is, most games are bad. Most most video games are, are 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 bad. I, I and most board games are bad. There there are good games, and there are games that are experimental or that are stretching the form or that make a good case for games as art, which isn't a discussion I generally get into unless I'm talking to my cool friend, Doctor Liz, because <laughs> you know for me, yeah, they are art. Full stop. Right? There, there's no there's no debate there. I'm not going to convince someone who doesn't think they're art that they're art, but um because there's going to be a tendency to overvalue games and the ability to play games well, um, that people are less likely to take games seriously in a way because the people who are taking them super seriously, they're, they're really obnoxious. <laughs> you know? The people who shouldn't be taking them super seriously. <laughs> yeah, because here's, here's the thing, because Something I feel very strongly is that intelligence or skill or whatever doesn't make you a good person. I would much rather... So uh, one of my favorite people who, who passed a couple years ago uh, is, is my grandmother. And I would say, I say this with love and with kindness, my grandmother was not the smartest person in the world, but she was extraordinarily kind. 
And I would much rather be kind than be smart. And I'd much rather be valued for kindness than, than for intelligence, right? Um, and so I, I feel, this is this is this is digressed quite a bit, hasn't it? No, but it's it's got me thinking too. Though I mean, you know, I my I'm a Latin teacher. My whole life, I've been a student. I made my mom let me quit being a child actress so that I couldn't stop missing school. A lot of my personality Wait, is based on wanting to be smart, wanting to feel smart. But I also am really glad I became a teacher because I think that I got the reminder I needed working with so many different types of students. Having talent doesn't mean anything unless you do something with it. And then the meaning of your talent comes from what it is you choose to do. So, yeah, I mean, you know, and I think you probably think about this too, you're a historian. It's like, man, everybody whose work I really love reading, like is dead. And and that will be me one day, like bleak, right? But I also think about like, you know, what's, what is it that people leave behind that others actually value? Like, what can you leave? And it's not going to be, you know, um, I have a record in Galaga or whatever necessarily, right? Maybe there are a few people who will remember that, but there are a lot of people who might remember what you said if you say it and like your statement continues to have meaning after Mm -hmm. you have moved on from it after you are gone. Yeah. And I think games can say things and I care more about what they say than about how fun they are even, or about like how easy they are to play or whether I'm good at them. I don't think that's necessarily the thing that gives the game value for me. Yeah. So it's the same with me. And and I think part of what helps me is that I am bad at games. <laughs> like if I'm playing a you know a non-solitaire game, if I'm playing a game and I win, then something's wrong with it. <laughs> so once, okay, th- this is a good story actually. Once I was at a convention and I was playing Northern Pacific. The game keeps coming up this this <laughs> this this interview um, with a group of people who I did not know, and also the game's developer for Rio Grande for the reprint. And the developer introduced me as the designer of the game. And I played the game with them. I did it so badly that they thought I was lying. And there's no way I could be the designer because I was the designer wouldn't have made such terrible mistakes. And no, I absolutely will. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely hilarious. And I love it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, well, and I think that's one reason why... Um, I don't mind games being frustrating. I don't mind. I'm not super tied up in like wanting to feel good playing the game. As long as I'm able to play the game and make some decisions that have impact, I'm not tied up in, am I going to win or not? Cause I already know I'm not going to win. <laughs> right. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. So uh, back to endurance. I just wanted to ask this really quick since I've been wondering what records do we have of this expedition? And like, how do we learn about the experiences that these men had while they were out there? Okay, so uh, several of the men had journals. Um, uh, several of them were interviewed by uh, a journalist named Alfred Lansing, who wrote a very popular and and still, I think, the definitive book about the expedition, which is called Endurance as well. Um 
which actually kind of brought because here's the thing when they came back from the expedition no one really cared because they were we were in the middle of world war one and no one cared about these 28 guys off in antarctica when there are millions of people dying in fact some of many of the men from the expedition immediately went into service wow and some died in the war um and you know there was very little fanfare for it and it wasn't until the 1950s when alfred lansing writes this book that uh, there's a lot more attention given to the expedition and to shackleton as a as a leader the qualities of his leadership which were um probably not as well recognized during his lifetime um certainly compared to um scott um another big antarctic explorer he he was kind of definitely like second tier whereas now i think shackleton's uh is he he's more uh well regarded and uh there have been like business books about the shackleton leadership you know whatever i hate those books Um, (laughs) you know um and so we have also have quite a few photographs because um the photographer frank hurley who had done other uh photographs of antarctic expeditions previously uh he was along as the photographer and he was and he shot film which uh a, a film was edited and released and is now lost we don't have the film anymore um like a lot of silent era cinema um so uh and in fact i all the photos in the game all all the cards use the photographs from um from hurley uh and uh using his photographs is how i i did the illustrations for the the individual men based on his photographs um so we have that kind of evidence as well and of course very very recently um, I want to say it was earlier this year. They found the wreck of the Endurance. Whoa! Mm-hmm. And they've started to, uh, you know, dig into that, excavate, uh, you know, under, under the water and whatnot. Um, so we have quite a bit of information about it. Actually, a lot of the day-to-day stuff, and the game really kind of focuses on that because here's the thing: when you're stuck on the ice for all those months, there's not much to do other than hunt food eat food and then try to distract yourself from the boredom and the hopelessness so a big part of the game is about morale and maintaining morale um and so how the game works i should probably talk about how the game works we probably have time for that for me to explain how <laughs> it works mechanically <laughs> okay so start of the game um you're going to draw two cards every turn. So there's a, a card-based game. Um, and on the cards, there uh, there is, on each card, there is an action, and there is a test, and there is a penalty. An action is, you know, you're going to do this thing this turn. A test is something that you need to fulfill, such as having a certain amount of food. Um, and the penalty is what happens if you fail either the action or the test. And you're going to choose one card for its action, and one card for his test, right? So it's, it's the top bottom kind of thing from like 
game like Gloomhaven or something, right? You'd yeah, choose, yeah. You choose one and then the other. And you fail, you, you do the penalty. But as the game moves on, you're going to start to draw three cards. And when you're drawing three cards, you take, choose an action, you choose a test, and then you just take the penalty. Then you just, and the penalty always is demoralization of, of a man, of a specific man. They'll, they'll flip from their blue, I'm doing okay side to their red, God, this sucks side. And um, as they continue to get demoralized, their ability to do things worsens. And then you go from drawing three cards a turn as the game progresses to drawing four cards a turn. And now you're doing an action, a test, and two penalties. And then you're drawing five cards a turn. And so as the game goes on, as you are spending longer and longer in Antarctica, it is harder and harder to not just be completely hopeless. And so you're trying to manage both their resources, you know, food, uh, ammunition, because you, you have some weapons you can use, um, you need to heat things, you need to be able to cook the food, so you need blubber for that. Um, you have some things that will help undemoralize. I'm still, I'm still looking for the right word for that, you know. Remoralize. Remoralize. Perka. Uh, yeah, uh, which, um, the, the three things I used uh, for that, I used a phonograph because I had a, a hand cranked phonograph and, um, I used a cookbook and I used playing cards. I'm going to talk about each of those in turn because I, I think that's interesting. Uh, but first I want to explain how these resources work, um, because, I don't want it to be so fiddly where you're tracking units of this, units of that. It's yeah. So it works on like a breakability test. So when you use an item, you're going to roll a die. And if you roll higher than the number printed on the counter, then it's fine. If you roll that number or less, then it's going to either flip over to a reduced side or be removed. So so you're so going you can you, break your stuff basically you break your stuff and that, and that includes like with like the food so the food is like i'm not going to keep track of all the different canned goods that you might have or or, right. or the meat like, like that's 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 too many counters i don't, I don't need that but you're going to uh you know, just you'll use food and then eventually oh we use so much of the food we have less of it right right um and so Coming back to like the three recreational items, the phonograph is the one that's the easiest to break. And the reason for that, you know, when they came down and they're preparing the expedition, they knew this phonograph is going to be important. We're going to want to listen to music. That's an important part of it. Even if things, everything goes right, this is still a grueling, difficult task and we still need to keep our spirits up. Right. So we need extra needles. And so they order uh thousands of extra needles but they don't specify phonograph needles oh, so no. they get thousands of sewing needles <laughs> so they have a very limited supply of phonograph needles and because of that they were using it once a week because they knew these are going to run out real soon so that that it breaks very easily the uh, the cookbook and the deck of cards don't break as easily, um, but you know things can still happen to objects, and they still also lose its. So they got into cards. They got really into playing bridge. Bridge was like the thing, and 
um, they were like playing bridge for days. And the thing is, after a while, you get tired of playing bridge over and over again. 18 yeah. months out on the ice, you're not going to still be really excited about playing contract bridge. So it's going to lose its novelty. So in that case, you know, the exhaustion of the item isn't, it, isn't necessarily representing something having to the item so much as eventually it stops having the same impact. Yeah. Um, and then they have the cookbook. And what the, what the deal with the cookbook is they passed it around and they would read recipes and imagine the food. Oh, that's a risky one. Yeah. Well, yeah, because you could either dream of something good or be disappointed that you don't have it. Well, they, yeah, well, they, they, <laughs> well, at least for a while, they dreamed of something good and, and they would talk about the recipes and, and ingredients and what, what they would want to eat. And none of them really wanted to eat meat because that's all they were, it was a very meat heavy diet. Uh, the things that they were eating, they're eating pemmican, but specifically they're eating dog pemmican, which is a form of pemmican that was made for the dogs that had less like flavor in it. Yeah. Um, they were eating fried bits of flour. Just just flour. <laughs> and then they were eating a lot of penguin and seal. And um, that just is that's not a great diet if you want to avoid like scurvy and stuff. They did okay. have some canned uh, fruits and vegetables and whatnot, but th those are very perishable and those aren't renewable the way the meat right. is. They also got tired of hunting because it turns out penguins don't know to run away from people. They're very trusting little critters. Oh no. And they just were so depressed just slaughtering these penguins over and again. And so in fact, some of the actions, the hunting actions, uh, when you take the action, you will demoralize someone automatically because doing this is demoralizing. Doing this over and over again is demoralizing. Um, and so that's the kind of thing the game is trying to like represent with its, its resource management and, and also its, its actions and the basic flow of the thing. And uh, yeah, so, and then there are event cards. There are several event cards that where it will basically change the circumstances of the game for a period of time. Um, and those are all things that either historically happened or could have happened. So there were a lot of jokes, jokes about, oh, what happens if someone dies? I guess we'll have to eat them. Which one would we want to eat? Oh, God. And the thing is previous expeditions did end in cannibalism in Antarctica. It's not a great place to hang out. Um, <laughs> There, um, there is an event card where, because you can choose to keep the dogs as long as you want to keep them. Um, oh yeah, okay. There, there is an event card where the dogs get worms because they got worms and they forgot to bring the wormer with them, so it just ravished the dogs. Unfortunately, um, there are there's an event card where you get demoralized because. You have run out of toilet paper, so you are wiping with ice, which actually is not, ice and snow are not great things to wipe with, turns oh, out. It's not like a little ice bidet. No, no, no it's, not, <laughs> it's not a little bidet. Um, 
there are uh, there's events where you know something a, a sea sea lion or sea leopard attacks and you have to stop someone from getting killed by it. Yeah. Um, there is there are events for like having to do a surgery on someone who has frostbite. All all that sort of stuff that you would yeah. expect and stuff that, that you know happened. And um, I try to center the. I try to center the physical suffering because I think a big part of the story is is not so much that they overcame or were brilliant or whatnot, is that they suffered through it. You know, um, there's a lot of stuff that I wish I could work into the game, but I couldn't quite figure out how to do it. For example, um, so when it got really cold, uh, they each little tent had a bucket which was used for urination. Ooh, and okay. the idea is when you fill the bucket to the top, you take it out and you pour it out. But that's a very unpleasant task. It smells bad. You're going out in the cold. And so as the bucket got closer to being full, there'd be like a game of chicken where they would just be laying there holding it <laughs> waiting for someone to give in and actually do actually be the first one to go pee and like i can't figure out how to work that into the game it's not gonna be in the game but that's that's the kind of it's really bleak and it really i i feel like it's important to center like the physical suffering and the the reality of human bodies, right? Yeah. So um, that's that's that game. You should buy it. It's, it'll make you feel so happy. <laughs> I mean, I'm actually really looking forward to it. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting that we have this conversation at the end. I kind of want to pull it full circle. Um, mm -hmm. So you mentioned that in a way, this is a game about, um, about miracles, about surviving despite all odds. And... You know, I had a really interesting conversation with my therapist this past week. Like I was in a good spot the last time we met and he said, you do realize that all these things seem like luck to you. Um, yeah, there's some luck involved, but it also has to do with the kind of person you are and the kind of decisions that you make. And so it's always a combo. So you should give yourself some credit. And um, just like we can give Shackleton some credit. Yeah. Uh, I think that that you deserve some too. You always ask the right questions. <laughs> That's very kind. Thank you. So, is there anything that you're playing right now for uh, just for the joy of it? Um, just just for the joy. Okay, it's just for the joy of it. Um, so, one of my girlfriends is really into Lost Ruins of Arnak, which is a Euro game about like. Um, exploring like temples and whatnot and there are critters and um so i've been playing that a lot um and actually so one of, one of the things is you know i'm i'm a game design weirdo and as time has moved on i've has moved i've moved on from like euro games generally um and because i make the kind of games i make i tend to look for games that are like the kind of games that i make and so it's been very interesting um you know, now that I've been dating <laughs> to, <laughs> to uh, be 
playing games with people who much prefer those kind of hero games and being able to appreciate them again. And I think that's, that's, that's good for me, actually, because um, I think part of my success as a designer was taking some Euro-y concepts and applying them to a historical game um, context. So re-immersing myself in those sorts of games, um, even if just to enjoy the company of my partners, um, has allowed me to kind of re-approach those. In fact, Lost Rings Arnak helped me with this game endurance because um so there are three types of food in 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 the game um there's the pemmican there's the meat and there's the canned goods and so different tests will require different kinds of food but you're able to substitute food um up or down a level and i basically crib that from the way the travel costs are substituted in that game Arnak. And I wouldn't have thought of that if I hadn't played like 12 games of Arnak in the last few months <laughs> as I was finishing up Shackleton. That's awesome. So. That's totally awesome. And uh, if you want to find you online, where can you be found? Oh, I'm definitely spent too much time on Twitter. That's uh, Amabel Holland, A-M-A-B-E-L-H-O-L-L-A-N-D. I'm also on the Discord. I'm not gonna give you my Discord handle. That'd be weird. However, if you're listening to this, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, advertise a little bit here. If you're listening to this and you are trans or non-binary and like 30-ish or older, there is a Discord server for you, Mabel's Table. DM me, I'll give you, I'll give you an invite. Fantastic. And uh, those of you who are listening probably know I can be found anywhere as Beyond Solitaire. Amabel, thanks so much for coming on. You're always one of my favorite guests to have and I hope to have you on many times in the future. That sounds great. <laughs> Thanks so much for everybody. Uh, like, subscribe, comment, and most of all, happy gaming.